Welcome to this podcast series on pseudoscience, fake news, and how to fight back. Supported by a grant from the Open Society Foundation and in partnership with a challenging pseudoscience group at the Royal Institution of Great Britain. My name is Marius Turda. Together with my colleague, Dr. Robert Pyra, we're inviting you to join a conversation about the meaning of history and the role of science in today's society. Our subject in this series is how history and science have become weaponized to support political agendas in East Central Europe, particularly during the last few years. This is intended as a lively and urgent contribution to the understanding of pseudoscience and of the uses and abuses of history in the era of the so-called fake news. My guest today is Ferenc Lotso, professor at Maastricht University in the Netherlands and an expert on the history of the Holocaust and questions of history and memory. Ferenc will talk about illiberalism in Hungary. Ferenc, welcome. Thank you so much for the invite. I'm glad to have the chance to participate. We're very, very pleased to have you with us today. Now, for the past 10 years or so, Viktor Orban has been in power in Hungary. And there are many positive aspects and, of course, many negative aspects related to what some people called his personal regime of political governance. Now, one of the key words being used in connection to his style and a word that indeed he often used uh, himself is illiberalism. I should like to start our conversation today, Ferenc, with a big discussion about what it means today whether we could look at it from a historical perspective and really to gauge some insights from you as an expert on Hungarian history and on the current debate on the importance of memory and history in post-communist Europe. Great. Again, I would perhaps like to start by saying that, you know, when Viktor Orban declared uh, in the 2010s that liberal rule had ended and that he was committed to building a new illiberal state, like he famously stated back in 2014, this was not the first time in modern Hungarian history that such an announcement uh, was made by a leading uh, politician. Uh, In fact, the Kingdom of Hungary, if you go back to the 19th century and the early 20th century, had a liberal, uh, if uh, far from democratic, uh, regime in place for about half a century prior to uh, 1918, uh, which was then followed by a short-lived democratic attempt and then by an equally short-lived communist experiment. And this Republic of Council of 1919 was then replaced uh, by the self-declared uh, counter-revolutionary rule uh, of Miklos Horthy. And this regime, which then existed for about a quarter of a century throughout the interwar period and most years uh, of the Second World War, was based on the so-called Christian national ideas. And this meant an explicit rejection of the liberalism of the previous decades. And it even meant uh, blaming liberalism for the dissolution of the kingdom in 1918. So it essentially meant that they were arguing that liberalism had failed the Hungarian nation. Now, the current regime, so Viktor Orban's regime also declares uh, that liberalism had failed the Hungarian nation, but he does so in a nominally democratic setting, right? So I think while both regimes under Horthy and now under Orban are, are illiberal and are explicit 
about being illiberal, and they both uh, draw on Christian national ideas. I also see this as a major difference, right? That the regime of Horthy was an arch-conservative regime. It was run by traditional elites, right? Mostly a nobleman. And it was also increasingly then challenged by the radical right. But it, this was a society which had never really experimented with democratic rule, right? Now, Orban's regime is a very different one because this is a populist regime uh, which uses majoritarianism to weaken checks and balances and to create a heavily uh, tilted uh, playing field, right? So, you know, again, I, I would say that, you know, Horty, in a sense, preempted democratization, whereas Orban is destroying democracy from within by using and abusing his own uh, democratic kind of uh, legitimacy, right? And I think, again, this is, this is a very important uh, difference because, you know, it's one thing to uh, preempt democratization. It's really another to want to separate modern democracy from liberalism, right? Orban is doing precisely that. He's saying that it is possible to create a more democratic system than liberal democracy. And here, I think his ambition almost inevitably uh, draws parallels with, with even with fascism and with Soviet communism, because these were really regimes that claimed to be establishing more organic uh, forms of democracy via autocratic means. And again, I think these parallels are almost inevitable because of the history of, of the country, even if Orban actually doesn't rule by force, right? So there is also that uh, crucial, crucial difference there. Yes, you mentioned parallelisms and I particularly like the way you looked at the interwar period and then you compare it to what's happening today. And there's one word you used, which perhaps you can explain a bit for our audience, which is populism. Those of us familiar with Hungarian history would know there is an internal discussion, which was called in the interwar period populist. However, there are very significant differences from that form of populism overall, but also uh, the type of Hungarian debate about populism in the interwar period and what nowadays people are calling populists and the way indeed you refer to Orban as a populist politician. So if you do have a few minutes to add maybe a footnote to your uh, commentary and maybe digress a little bit, but I think our audience will find it useful to tell us a bit more about this populist and how you would place Orban within that tradition. Yes, that's actually a very good question, because you see, after 1989, there was this strong division between the so-called urbanus or urban and populist or nepi uh, intellectuals in Hungary. And some of this was projected backwards in time. And some people started to believe that the Horthy regime was somehow based on, on an idea of populism or kind of populist mobilization, which was never quite the case. This was really an arch conservative uh, regime and its challengers really came from the far right. But the populist or NAPI intellectuals were actually critiques of the Horthy regime, primarily because the Horthy regime didn't implement a serious land reform. So the society was very unequal. Uh, in that sense, it remained uh, dominated by large uh, land-owning uh, uh, classes. And the NAPI intellectuals, the populists of the time, could in a way opt for various political ideologies, right? Some of them actually ended up on the far right. I think we should be clear on that. Others actually were more liberal. Istvan Bibo, who's, who's a great uh, hero for, for many liberal intellectuals today, he also came from the so-called uh, populist uh, tradition, whereas all others may have ended up as supporting the communist uh, regime, right? And uh, Ferenc Erde 
Day or others are a good example for that. So again, that is the local tradition of, of populism, which is, of course, again, embedded uh, in a global history of populism. Uh, again, agrarian populism, one should perhaps uh, qualify. And I think what we have today, and that's, again, the, the, the point about the Orban regime, Orban is also an, an, a phenomenon which is clearly internationally embedded. I, I like to emphasize, you know, that he's often seen as somehow almost unique in the context of the European Union. But when you look at global politics, you bring in cases such as, you know, Trump uh, in the US, Bolsonaro uh, in Brazil, uh, Modi uh, in India or others. We may mention Putin or Netanyahu. This is really a global trend uh, of a new kind of right-wing populism. And Orban really learns a lot uh, from, from his uh, counterparts in other countries, really draws uh, on their methods, on their strategies uh, quite uh, directly. So I think that's, again, we're talking here about a very different kind of early 21st century uh, populism. I couldn't agree more, and I'm very pleased you broadened up that to include a comparative perspective because I think that's badly needed. It also allows me, in a way, to move swiftly to another point I want to discuss with you, which is, of course, a similar uh, feature of all these regimes of people you mentioned. And this is something we've seen happening for the past decade, but with a great intensity in the past three or four years, which is basically a resurgence of myths of origins. Of, uh, of historical narratives. We, we almost could say, uh, ironically, we could see the return of the master narratives. Those of us who are, who are interested in historiography would be quite familiar with the discussion about the master narratives and how much they were fractured and ruptured uh, 20 years ago in the field of historical debate. However, at the level of population, what we could see nowadays is this return you know, to the big story. Mm-hmm. People nowadays love coherent stories about the country, about their past, about their future. And I think if we look at countries across Central Europe, uh, but more broadly, like you said, if we look at Brazil, you look at India, you look at what happened during Trump uh, in the United States of America, you could see that convergence of various narratives, some of them bordering, you know, supremacy and racism, others becoming extremely uh, radical in terms of social reform, communist, leftist, anarchists, but they're all working together with a return, if we can say that, uh, of memory, return of the narrative, return of sort of, you know, projects that were very popular in the 1930s again, and in some cases, as it happened in Eastern Europe during communism. So I should like to ask you, Ferenc, to say a few words about how these memory projects uh, sort of really developed in Hungary uh, mm-hmm. in the last decade. And we have some prominent examples, some of them even called international scandals, everything from, you know, the House of Terror to the Holocaust uh, memorials, but also more broadly about, you know, the celebration of various war criminals in various forms. And of course, indeed, the sort of the public defamation of Hungarian-born people, such as George Soros, within the entire sort of campaign and kaleidoscopic arrangement that Orban and his regime is putting for public display. This is a project in public display, I would argue, And you are one of those who got very much involved in discussing this internally and externally, and I think will benefit greatly from your insight. Again, I would like to perhaps start by saying that there have been various state-led attempts since 2010 to reshape cultural memory and also to reshape what actually qualifies as historical research in the first place. 
And uh, these have been attempts to, to establish a right-wing hegemony through an, a new old construction of historical identity. And this, these constructions have drawn directly uh, on ideas and also on activities of nationalistic members of civil society, uh, members of civil society who have, who have already been intensely uh, mobilized by the early uh, 21st century. So again, this, this right-wing radicalization of, of a politically active citizenry, I would say, happened earlier than the right-wing radicalization of the political elite. Right, it was already visible before 2010, and the political elite really sort of followed up uh, on that. I think that's very important uh, to understand this this logic that it doesn't just come from above; it is actually really quite deeply embedded uh, in Hungarian uh, society. Now, when it comes to the reinterpretation of of modern and contemporary history, uh, and again, let, let let me focus just on modern and contemporary times for the moment. Uh, I would highlight three themes that I believe have really been central. Uh, the first is the official remembrance of the Trianon uh, Peace Treaty of 1920, when the territory uh, of Hungary was uh, drastically uh, shrunk in the, in the context of the collapse of the Habsburg uh, Empire. Uh, and this new official remembrance uh, really focuses on canonizing this as a national trauma, but also on overcoming uh, the trauma through what, again, the ruling uh, party Fidesz uh, prefers to call a national reunification, right? This is a kind of ethno-nationalist project across borders, and it operates uh, primarily uh, via extending a dual citizenship, which again is again clearly connected to party uh, political gain uh, for Fidesz, since most of those uh, people who have received uh, Hungarian citizenship across the borders have then also endorsed uh, Fidesz in case uh, they registered uh, to vote uh, in Hungary as well, which, which they were allowed uh, to do after, afterwards. Now, again, Trianon has obviously been a key symbol for interwar Hungary. So when the current regime revives its remembrance and kind of makes it part of the of the national canon, it, I think, unavoidably revives a spirit of revanchism, even if it aims to, to tame explicit calls uh, to, to border revision, right? So this is a very ambiguous kind of, I think, a uh, way of, of, of remembering something which on the one hand is re revanchist and on the other hand, really try to, so to say, stay clear of the, of the explicit revisionism that the symbol of Trianon in a way always implied uh, in the interwar period. Now, the second, I think, key theme, uh, which I would like to highlight, uh, concerns the thesis of the double occupation, this idea that... Uh, the Nazis and also the Soviets basically invaded uh, Hungary and totalitarian dictatorships were imposed uh, on the country, right? That they basically inflicted uh, traumas uh, on Hungarian society uh, and Hungarian society was, was, was deprived uh, of, of the chance to, uh, to live under a sovereign state, right? So the idea is that this, this dual occupation is also a way of talking about national sovereignty. And, uh, and I think this is particularly convenient for nationalists in Hungary because it really effaces uh, the responsibility of the Hungarian state for the, for the mass crimes during uh, the Second World War, right? The idea is it's, it's the Nazis, it's the Germans who are responsible. And it's also very convenient uh, internationally uh, in the current uh, situation because this uh, narrative on the, on the double uh, occupation, I would say, aligns uh, Hungary very closely with a wider 
uh, regional discourse, right? If you look at Poland or if you look at the Baltic states or also a host of other post-communist states, they, they actually have a shared interest on the European level to talk about this double uh, occupation. So again, Hungary is in a way, uh, you know, whitewashing its history, but it's also aligning itself uh, with, its, with its regional allies at the very same time. So again, that's, I think, the second major pillar. And again, the House of Terror uh, that you mentioned earlier was the, the innovative uh, moment when it opened in 2002. This museum featured this narrative or displayed it very uh, prominently. And then this idea found it, its way uh, to the preamble uh, of the new basic law uh, of the country by, by 2011, again, coming into force uh, in 2012. So a, a decade later, once uh, Fidesz had the legitimacy, so to say, to change uh, the constitution. Now, let me say just a few words about the third key pillar. Uh, I think there's also kind of a new approach to history, which really emphasizes the criminal nature of Soviet communist rule, right? This is something we've seen, again, all across uh, Eastern Europe. But in Hungary, I think it takes a slightly peculiar form in the sense that it's also there to delegitimize the left as a whole. Uh, so again, the a key element there is this emphasis that uh, the, the transition to liberal democracy in 1989 was was half-hearted, and that only Fidesz's major victory uh, in 2010 then truly enabled a kind of national restoration and a kind of national uh, a project of national uh, renewal. Right. So here the idea is that you have to overcome the compromises of the transition period. And through that, you're also overcoming a liberal democracy at the, at the very same time. So, again, I think what I would like to say here is that these three narratives of modern and contemporary history, I see them as very, very closely linked to current uh, political agendas, right? They concern ethno-nationalism, a uh, questioning of state responsibility, and they concern stigmatization of uh, the left. So again, they point to a new kind of plan uh, to establish a right-wing hegemony. I wanted to add a small comment to this, particularly because I found the short explanation you gave us so well-structured, particularly convincing. And it struck me when you were talking about national reunification as a terminology nowadays used for uh, what in the interwar period have been called irredentism. So it's interesting that you have a regime that defines itself or a political leader defines himself as illiberal, who uses actually liberal modernist language of the 19th century. 19th century liberals will speak about national reunification while the interwar period radicals will talk about irredentism and irredentism in terms of like reconquering. So what I'm trying to say is that, and I'm curious to hear your uh, opinion on that, we, we're witnessing, uh, uh, of course, the writing of history, but also a rewriting of history. But we're also witnessing maybe the emergence of a political language, which uh, has so many different nuances. Some of them uh, are visible to us because we know the history of the region and we know the history of the particular country. But even to experts, uh, in many cases, other things are obscured by the fact that they are used completely idiosyncratic. And I think Viktor Orban has this not only charisma, but also talent in terms of really fusing uh, so many different traditions, which um, to unpack them uh, re really requires a lot of hermeneutical skills, ultimately, because he really uh, picks and chooses whatever fits the, the narrative he wants to put forward. And of course, uh, this also plays very well, like you said, with something which is embedded in Hungarian society. So we do need to take into account the responses the population or the public or his supporters uh, show to his message. 
and to him personally. And we can see this across the board. Well, we're talking about football teams or we're talking you know, about cultural management in places like Transylvania or Voivodina. Or indeed, we're talking about you know, the big rhetoric about Trianon. So can you perhaps say a few words about these responses? Some of them emotional, others rational, some of them even irrational to political legitimacy in Hungary today. Great. Again, I, I do believe that uh, looking at uh, emotional regimes is, is crucial uh, to understanding uh, this political project. You know, right-wing populism uh, in power, uh, like we've seen in, in Hungary uh, over the past uh, decade, is, is perhaps best approached as a, as a very specific uh, emotional regime. It, it means, uh, you know, if populists are in power, this means that power holders constantly play on the idea that somebody else is still in power and they themselves represent the majority, but they are being mistreated for being opposed to the mainstream, right? This idea is that there is this mainstream defined by the elites abroad and also by internationally oriented elites at home, right? And they are basically mistreating those who would legitimately rule as, you know, representing the majority. And, you know, populists are exerting ever greater control over, over institutions and and are fighting these so-called anti-majoritarian elites and institutions, right? Institutions that, to my mind, uh, play a critical a balancing role uh, in a liberal uh, democracy, right? I mean, let me give you an, an example. You know, the large majority of local media uh, in Hungary today uh, is in the hands uh, of the state and its close uh, allies. There's absolutely no uh, doubt about that. But the regime is still fighting the few remaining independent outlets in the name of breaking liberal hegemony, abolishing the dominance of the leftist ideas, and, and so on and so forth, right? Now, now this constantly uh, draws on the idea that these media are not truly independent and that they actually serve a special uh, interests, right? So again, the, the representatives of the regime use uh, all sorts of labels to, to label these outlets and to make their own supporters suspicious about independent reporting. You know, it's all just part of the culture of war, according to them. So any inconvenient fact uh, can be labeled as a, as a mere opinion or as a malevolent uh, perspective, right? Uh, and again, if everything is just a matter of perspective, if everything is just a matter of opinion, then our own opinions and our own actions do not really have to be rationalized. They do not really have to be justified, right? The idea is somebody will have to be dominant and it's for us better to be dominant than, than if they are dominant who constantly accuse us and want to force things on us and so on. Now, again, for me, the big question is why is this kind of distortion, you know, why is this kind of authoritarian uh, logic uh, and authoritarian strategy so persuasive uh, to so many people, right? How can it actually be effective? And I think, again, the emotional register uh, is really the key. So, so let me say just a few words about that as well. I think the idea, you know, is, is really prevalent in society. And this is, again, reinforced by the regime as well, that you can never uh, succeed uh, just by performing well, because there are no independent standards, right? There are no independent standards. So what is the implication of that? Well, you know, if you are a moral person, you have to resent those who, who have become more successful than, than you are because they have managed to trick the others, right? So if they have tricked the others, and that's how they have arrived in these kinds of, you know, elite uh, positions, 
who are they to critique you and your kind of perspective, right? They are the ones who are morally questionable. And so, of course, if you accept that, right, there are no independent standards, everything is just, a, a, you know, opinion and perspective, then criticism is, is no longer viewed as, a, as an essential element in the democratic process. There can be no constructive exchange of arguments anymore. And again, you, you basically have to respond to these things with, with a sense of moral uh, outrage, right? And Fidesz is playing on this all the time. You know, they pretend to be liberal, they pretend to be tolerant, but look, they want to force their opinions on us. And, and by what right are they doing that? You know, and I think it's really, you know, Fidesz is really obsessed uh, with locating and responding to criticism internationally. You know, you can really see that all the time when something like a significant article gets published about Hungary, you can almost be sure that somebody will, you know, offer a, a rebuttal, a kind of official uh, response within a day or two, because they really want to impute intentions to their authors, and they really kind of want to reveal the supposed biases uh, behind these kinds of uh, criticisms. And this, you know, this really reinforces a sense of being besieged, and it feeds a kind of culture of polarization, and it generates an emotional regime, to my mind, uh, that really revolves around moral outrage, right? So again, for, for a kind of populist voter who is actually in power, the most important thing is to wake up and to, to again feel this uh, moral outrage, which, you know, to my mind is basically false uh, moralizing. But we have to understand that false moralizing is a major uh, political force. Thank you. I just think that perhaps we could add a couple of lines before we move into the last part of our uh, conversation, Ferenc, because I particularly liked what you said in connection to uh, distortion, in connection to outrage, all these words which would indicate to anyone who's listening, is there a crisis of legitimacy then in Hungary? Because you, you can't, notwithstanding what uh, the regime is saying or what the main politicians are saying, the way they behave is basically exactly uh, suggesting the opposite. Because if you are completely relaxed and solidly uh, and firmly based, and you know you are legitimate, you came to power through democratic elections, you have a solid basis for your policies across the political spectrum, perhaps, and certainly across the population, then why? Why would you need all of these. I mean, those of us who are familiar with Hungarian history and recent Hungarian history, we would witness um, what nowadays is very popular, right? Uh, the whole idea of fake news. But before it became popular, you would have seen this across the Central Europe, not just in Hungary, but Hungary became, in a way, like you pointed out, a more paranoid form of, uh, you know, manipulating the emotional responses of the population to a direction in which you felt you know, maybe it's needed because there's not enough support. Uh, and that is commensurate with the idea that they have something with Hungary. Uh, they have something with Orban. No? Uh, abroad, like you say, if someone would publish a, a critique or criticism of the, of the country, immediately is reacting at the highest political level. Which is, of course, a misconception because no one has anything against Hungary, as we know. But, of course, this is not how the population or the person in a small village or in a small town in the countryside would perceive it. They would actually believe that the government is telling them that, you know, we need to revolt. And that works externally, like we pointed out, but also works, regrettably, very well internally as a form of emotional cleansing 
according to which those who are against us are basically traitors of the nation. So if you are independent, you're either serving foreign interests, and we know the language around that, so there's a, a certain, you know, the fake news work in this way as well, right? So they speak like that because they sold to, you know, European powers or George Soros or Russia or whatever you, or indeed... These are those pockets of uh, leftist communist uh, resistance that survived to this day and this critical thinking. You know, they talk about decolonization. They talk about racism. They talk about whiteness. I mean, these are things completely, of course, imported by intellectuals on the left to really destabilize and destroy, basically, the wonderful harmony that exists in Hungarian cultural sphere. Right. So I think, you know, this is extremely relevant to us, not only in connection to history, but also in connection to memory and broadly speaking, in connection to what now is the manipulation of the media and how the media works, like you say, to serve the regime. If you look at Hungary, it's more or less heavily controlled by the regime and by the political party, by Fidesz. Now, we're slowly moving towards the end of our conversation. And I regret to say that because I terribly enjoy this. Thank you so much. But I want to bring it forward to a topic that, you know, preoccupies all of us as we live in very strange times and uh, difficult times for so many of us. And of course, that has a very important role, plays a very important role in shaping political activity, political legitimacy, how uh, certain countries and regimes feel that because we are now in a pandemic, that because now we need to intervene very uh, convincingly into the life of the citizens. Uh, we have extra powers now, and we hear all of these emergencies, uh, powers that the governments are being granted to uh, control, manage, and ultimately, you know, uh, allegedly take us out of this crisis. So us who are interested in history and memory and science and how we can find ways to formulate an answer to forms of, you know, uh, intellectual, cultural, and political oppression in a way, but also to express our views in terms of understanding a historical phenomena, we were keen to connect the dots and see whether we could find a reasonable conversation about the role of science and politics in the pandemic. So my question to you, and this is the last topic of today's conversation, Ferenc, is do you think that the current pandemic actually strengthened, or maybe you would argue the opposite, it weakened uh, the appeal of illiberal politics in Central Europe? more broadly, and in Hungary more, uh, more specifically? My first idea would be to say that the Orban regime has certainly entrenched itself uh, further uh, in Hungary uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. But at the very same time, I think its appeal has actually declined. Uh, so let me say a, a bit more about that, because I think that's a very interesting uh, combination. So, you know, I think the, the regime has really managed uh, to use uh, the pandemic to further centralize uh, its power and to extend it over additional areas. The media and also higher education have been really important uh, targets uh, in more recent uh, months. And again, these are just two of the of the several uh, areas that, that they have they have targeted uh, in, in recent months. But I think the the support for Orban and his regime has been very strongly based on the economic performance of the country, right? Hungary has seen rather consistent economic growth since 2010. And there are important opinion polls that show that the one area where people think that the regime has done a really poor job is the healthcare sector, 
right? The healthcare sector has suffered from underinvestment and also from out migration within the within the European Union. So again, when you have the economy plummeting and the healthcare sector is is, is coming under such a strain as as it has uh, during the pandemic, then I think this really takes away two major sources of legitimacy for the regime right in a sense that it's it's highlighting its major weakness and it's and it's basically weakening its major strength right so that's i think a very important uh, thing to understand and on top of that what you have is that you know the urban government has responded to the social crisis that was in a way inevitable due to the to the lockdowns and due to, to all the consequences of the pandemic, it has basically responded to that in a kind of neoliberal key, I would, I would argue. It has really prioritized you know, businesses and it hasn't really offered a kind of social program of bailout, if you wish, for, for society. So, so I think what is, what is really also important here beyond all these factors is that the emergency rule that has come into force in, in Hungary has also united the opposition. And this is now an opposition that I think will seriously contest the upcoming election next year. So this is a very, very curious situation. I've never seen anything quite like it. You have an ever more tightly controlled state on the one hand, and then you have an opposition which is ahead in the polls at the very same time. Right. So this is almost, this is almost paradoxical. And I mean, we, we really don't know where this is where this is heading. What kind of unfolding uh, we'll, we'll we'll see in the coming months and years. But I think one thing that has also really changed. Uh, is the international embeddedness, the international legitimacy of Orban's rule, because I think he has really lost a, a lot of his of his best uh, connections, right? He has confronted the EU ever more uh, directly, which I think has been a very uh, silly uh, thing to do, uh, very you know counterproductive. They have basically broken up uh, with the uh, European People's Party after a very uh, complicated kind of relationship. And also his chief Western supporter, Donald Trump, is of course, has been defeated and has been replaced by a liberal internationalist administration of Joe Biden. So all these changes, I think, means that Orban, who actually a few years ago had really strong cards to shape European politics, at least to some extent. Right now, he looks, I think, more isolated. And in this situation, you know, he has started to flirt with China. Uh, which is his new, very bold, very ambitious strategy. I, I see it as a somewhat, you know, desperate uh, move, uh, but I think it really shows something very important about Orban's personal, so to say, views. And I think you alluded to that uh, already, but, you know, he is a person who's really extremely eager to read the zeitgeist, right? He was a youthful revolutionary in 1989, he was this bourgeois westernizer, you know, he had this idea of the, the bourgeois Hungary uh, in the 90s. He became a far-right politician in the 2010s when he thought that the world was going towards a kind of illiberal revolution. And now he's opening the country to China, uh, again, trying to catch, you know, this big wave of, of you know, when China becomes the, uh, the dominant force in, in, in global affairs or so. And again, I think, you know, he's, I think he's good at reading uh, the zeitgeist on a very basic level. But I do think that, you know, being a successful and, and constructive uh, politician requires many other qualities, requires much more than having this basic orientation. Okay, is it the far right or is it China? That's so to say coming, right? Uh, and I think on the deeper level, uh, 
what this pandemic has also shown is that a lot more is possible than we previously thought, right? You can close the borders, you can stop the flights, you know, all sorts of political projects have in a way been emboldened <laughs> by the pandemic. But I think what, what populists in power, such as Orban, also show to us is that they are much better at gest gesturing at a strong state than at really developing state capacity, right? So I think they, they kind of try to show a regimented society, but they are not that good at coordinating a complex response. And I think in that sense, the appeal of Orban has probably uh, severely been damaged uh, during this uh, pandemic. Thank you. It remains to be seen, of course, how things are unfolding. And like you say, you have elections next year. Maybe the opposition would become more uh, successful. Also, we don't know exactly how the pandemic is going to pan out. Uh, it could, you know, hopefully for all of us, uh, develop into a direction we all hope for. But it might as well go the other way. And then uh, the state and the government and governments across Europe and the world will have to intervene in the way we have not anticipated before. I completely agree with your assessment. And I think it's in a way interesting to see that this moment in history is so important on so many levels. And like you said, it could actually rearrange the main tenets of European politics and certainly politics in Eastern Europe. And hopefully these are the things that we can unpack in future conversations with experts such as yourself. Ferenc, thank you very much indeed. Uh, it's been so a real much. pleasure. And we're all very grateful to you for finding the time and for your insights. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. My pleasure.